Stay tuned for an encore edition of The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Julie talks to Patricia McConnell, Ph.D. today, about the D-word or dominance and its misuse in the dog training industry. This episode is brought to you by the Natural Pet Pantry, raw and cooked food for dogs and cats. Go online to naturalpetpantry.com or visit the stores in Kirkland and Burien to pick up the best food for your dog and cat. Receive 10% off your first purchase with the coupon code JF-NPP. This episode is also brought to you by Farm Dog Naturals. Their small line of products meets a wide variety of daily needs of pet parents. Their skin salves, household cleaner, and relaxing aromatherapy oil are staples in Julie's house. You'll love the result. Go to farmdognaturals.com to order today. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all. Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk AM 1150 on this fine Seattle day. What a nice day to take your dog for a walk. Good point. (laughs) Actually, it's it's getting a little too hot, so please be mindful of your pet's uh, level of temperature and um, just be careful, especially in the heat of the day. Um, And that's not just with uh, their body temperature, but with pavement and, um, you know, of course, cars. So you just can't be too careful with that kind of thing. So please be careful. I'm really excited about the show today. I, you know, I think I say that every week, but this is a particular highlight for me. We're going to be talking with Patricia McConnell, who is uh, someone who I studied in the 90s when I was in school um, and who's just been around for quite some time. And we're going to be talking about some really important topics. Um, time. I'm going to bring um, Dr. Patricia McConnell on the air with us. Uh, Patricia, welcome to the dog show. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So um, you have written a number of books in your career, and it sounds like we have more to look forward to in the future. Um, books including The Other End of the Leash, uh, leader of the pack, and many more. And your website is patriciamcconnell.com, so people can find out more about you there. Um, and you're one of the speakers at this year's Sparks Conference, which is exciting. Yes, it should be really fun. There's a lot of great people speaking that I'm looking forward to hearing. Yeah. So either, you know, people can attend live. There's just nothing like live, right? Yes. You know, it's just all that electricity makes such a big difference. Um, but it's, but as you said earlier, it's free. You can live stream it. Um, so people all around the world are signed up already. So yeah, I think it's going to be very stimulating, really, really exciting. Yeah, if it was anything like last year's, which I was there in person, um, and it was the first year, it was so, I was so impressed with how they how they did, I mean, with the speakers and the quality of the content, but with what a great job Prescott and his um, his team did in putting on such a wonderful uh, conference. It's just exciting that this is an annual thing now. So really look forward to that. As you said, um, you can go either in person if you'd like to go to Newport, Rhode Island, beautiful New England. That's my uh, home region. And uh, you can also listen from anywhere in the world. Uh, just go to caninescience.info. So um, as we've said, uh, we're going to talk today about uh, a a few different topics, but one of the big ones is the D word, uh, dominance, and um, how misunderstood, misused um, this word has become in the industry of dog training, which is a relatively new industry given that the industry itself is in a place that it never had been 30, 40 years ago because the nature of the relationship is different. I mean, more dogs are living in homes now than they did a few decades ago. That changes the dynamic and people's perceptions towards and sort of relationship to their dog and really viewing them more as family members is wonderful and also complicates things as well. So now you are an ethologist, which is a uh, not very well-known word in this country anyway. So uh, it's an expert in animal behavior. Is that right? 
That's right. Yes, and you're right. Sometimes I say I was trained as an ethologist, and people say, oh, ecology. Yes, yes, <laughs> it's a great field. Yeah, it's a much more familiar term in Europe. Um, basically, it's, it's the study of animal behavior. It, it originated focused on behavior in the natural environment. So it was a lot about how an animal's environment um, affects it, mm-hmm. um, but also how animals within that environment communicate, so it's interesting, the fields of psychology and ethology used to be quite disparate, but the good news is that they've now joined hands to mostly, not 100%, but mostly. And and so now, you know, the perspective of understanding learning, um, doing good controlled experiments where you are controlling for things, mm-hmm. possibly in a laboratory, but understanding that a laboratory itself is a confounding factor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so I... I, I was drawn to ethology because it, it's such a humble science. Its originators, Tinbergen, for example, Conrad Lorenz, basically it was Tinbergen who said, you don't even know a good question to ask about an animal until you sat where they live and watched them for a year. Mm. I just thought that was great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let them tell you what the important questions are. Yeah. I love that. And I think just fundament, fundamentally operating from a place of respect for the animal in in studying them and oh you know. yeah very respectful very mm-hmm. much about about who you know what can we figure out about who this animal is um about how it he she perceives the world how how its perceptions what its reality is yeah you know we don't we, we think reality is like a single unitary thing and it's actually there are a million realities out there right you know we just happen to have one and we call it the reality but it's not yeah it's ours. And that's one of the challenges with the word dominance is that it's like, ooh, like dominance is this uh, status that somebody occupies all the time in every context. And, it, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's so misunderstood. So will you start by telling, by just explaining for a minute, what is the, the sort of, from your scientific perspective, the accepted understanding of what it is? That's a great way to start this conversation because, you know, when you, when you talk to progressive dog trainers, um, they either never use the word on purpose or they, um, they're just, we're so uncomfortable. And that, I include myself in it. I'm so uncomfortable in a dog training setting even using that word anymore. That's mm-hmm. why I call it the D word. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, veterinary behaviors, and I once um, joked about do you remember Prince, who had some kind of Prince uh, musician, yeah. who had some kind of problem, and so for years he was, um, there was a symbol that used to be the name Prince. Of course, <laughs> the artist formerly known as Prince. The artist formerly known as Prince. <laughs> yeah. So we decided we should come up with a symbol for the concept <laughs> formerly known as Dominus. <laughs> I love it. But on the other hand, Julie, if you go into um, other fields of science, of uh, people who study animal behavior, wildlife ecologists, ethologists, Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When I talk to them about dominance being a dirty word in dog training, they look at you like, what? <laughs> yeah. What? What do you mean? So, so your original question is really important is what is it? What are we talking about? And, and what we're talking about is something so much more narrow than it's been used and misused mm-hmm. in dog training. What we're talking about, dominance is simply a label for a prediction. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dominance is a prediction of who's going to get the pork chop if both animals want it and it falls in between them. Mm-hmm. It, dominance is just a prediction about what's going to happen. And, and basically, it's a way of describing a social situation in which one animal has priority access to a particular resource to usually a preferred and usually limited resource. And so which individual, if it comes down to a competition between two of them, is most likely to get it. So that's all it is. That's all it is. It has nothing to do with aggression, first of all. Yes, you can get dominance with aggression, just like politically you can get dominance over a country with a military coup, right? But you can also get elected. Um, There are lots of ways to get power in the world, right? Mm -hmm. And highly social animals need some kind of ritualized way to help them decide what to do. 
<laughs> and and who's you know without having to fight every single time. Um, so so highly social animals often have a kind of a social hierarchy in which um, in which for whatever reason one individual is deferred to by others when it comes to a resource. So it doesn't mean aggression, and most importantly, it doesn't mean control. And I think that's the key, and that's the primary misunderstanding in dog training, is some trainers have, have used it, um, confounded it with control. And it has nothing to do with control. So dominance has nothing to do with whether your dog comes when called, nothing to do with whether your dog waits at the door, nothing to do with um, your dog not biting the visitor. Um, It has nothing to do with any of those things. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the primary confusion and problem in that there's so much bad advice still about, quote, getting dominance over your dog so your dog will behave. When it's not about behaving, it's just about between two dogs, who gets the pork chop? Mm-hmm. So if um, one of the things that when you said aggression, um, that is also a word, that could be the A word um, in this <laughs> right. conversation. Right. Because dogs use what I would consider a low level of of technically aggression to communicate and to set boundaries, whether it be a hard, even even a hard look um, or raising of the lip or growl or even an air snap with no intention of hurting anybody, but of communicating, don't take my bone. So, so that's not necessarily... So from your perspective, if, if a dog has a bone... And another dog is like, hey, I'm going to take that bone. And the dog's like, nee, why don't you not get too close? But the dog's not going to, like, attack. So it doesn't have aggression issues. Mm-hmm. So wouldn't that, so that is then not, would you consider that a, an interaction of dominance where the dog is, or is, or really is that really more about the dog maintaining control of what it has and that's actually not dominance? Um, boy, there's a lot of questions in there, and, and, but it's a great example. It's a great scenario. So first of all, say a dog has a bone, and another dog comes over, and, um, and the dog with the bone lifts its head and just looks at the other dog with a direct stare, mm-hmm. all right? Ethologists, people who study, like primatologists who study chimpanzees, for example, they would call that a dominance display. Meaning, I'm I'm just I'm just looking at you. <laughs> I'm just looking at you, and I'm telling you, you want this bone, and I want this bone, and I'm telling you, it's my bone. Mm-hmm. What what's likely is that the other dog will turn and walk away. Um, so, so what's important to remember? What one of the things I think so important to sort through is that again, dominance is a relationship. Aggression, as you said, is um, considered to be behavior with a, quote, intent to harm. And that one, by the way, I find Mm. fascinating because we're not supposed to be talking about intent. (laughs) How do we know (laughs) what intent to harm is, right? right? right. People sort of throw that one out the window, except otherwise we're not allowed to think about what the intent is, right? But but the displays you're talking about, a lip curl, um, a hard stare, those are what are called agonistic displays, meaning those are signals, um, ritualized signals between members of a social group mm-hmm. which convey a lot of information. Mm-hmm. And again, they're basically about predictions. Mm-hmm. So if a dog comes over um, and stands by another dog's bone, there are all kinds of ways the dog with the bone could react. It could start thumping its tail, it could turn its head, it could walk away. That happens often, right? Mm-hmm. Um, say the other, the dog without the bone comes over and does a, does sort of a looms over and does a stand over, goes stiff and still and raises its tail. Mm-hmm. Um, the other dog might walk away. So there is, um, you know, there's a relationship. Dominance is a relationship again and a prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all kinds of displays that dogs use to try and work these things out. Um, the classic, by the way, the classic dominance display is not 
is not actually seen during times of conflict. And, and that doesn't seem intuitive. If you look at other species, primates, for example, um, the classic dominance display is seen during greeting rituals. Mm. It has nothing to do with aggression, nothing to do with a raised lip. But think about two dogs greeting. How often do you see dogs greeting in which one dog's tail is up and one dog's tail is not up as high? Mm-hmm. That is what ethologists would call a dominance display. That's just one tail is up, one is down, and basically is believed to be the tail base, not the tip of the tail, but the base of the tail, correlates based on research that um, Annika Lisbert did at UW, at UW um, in Whitewater and Madison. Um, what she found was the, the um, raise of the tail base, uh, the higher the tail base, the more correlated with whatever dog did get food if she sort of threw food in between a bunch of dogs. Mm. So there's this correlation between who gets the resource um, and a particular display, the raise, uh, the rise of a tail base, for example. And you mostly see that, though, during greetings. And there's no aggression. Now, sometimes there is, obviously, mm-hmm. with dogs who have issues. Mm-hmm. But usually there's no aggression. The other thing I find interesting about these, these social hierarchies in a whole range of species is that most of the, quote, and, well, most of the initiation of behavior that involves some of these displays, whether they are on one side or the other, whether you want to call it submissive displays or appeasement displays, I don't care what you call them, but, but usually it's that individual that initiates them. So it's an individual initiates um, putting its head down or its tail down or doing what's, what is called in ethology passive submission or active submission, licking the muzzle of another dog or rolling over on its back. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I know people don't like the word submission, <laughs> and I think that's very much, I was thinking about that a lot lately, I think it's very much related to to human behavior. Absolutely. Human, don't you think? <laughs> yes. Like, especially women, we don't really like that word very oh, much anymore. Yes. It's so loaded, but yeah. it doesn't mean in interactions between dogs what it means with us. Yeah. And I think it's I think your point is a really good one to look at the person who's having the reaction to the word as opposed to maybe the word itself in explaining the reaction. Um, we uh, we're going to take a quick break and then I'm going to kind of take this conversation in a um, little bit of a different direction. But it's it's a uh, it's such a great um, the my favorite part of this is the talking about the the difference between well one aggression clarifying that that is intent to harm um technically and and also really talking about the different displays that dogs will give each other um to communicate this or that or you know given the different situation and what there is for us to learn about that and i know that this is one of the topics of your um talk uh, kind of talking specifically about us really reading that and getting better at understanding it, that. Yeah, it is. And if, and um, when we come back from the break, I want to add something very important, very dear to my heart, which is that this whole issue about dominance, mm-hmm. what does dominance have to do with the way we train dogs? Yeah. I would say nothing. Great. <laughs> I really, really want to make that point. Yes, wonderful. So we will be right back. Uh, we're talking with Patricia McConnell, who is one of the speakers at this year's Sparks Conference in Newport, Rhode Island, June 20th through the 22nd. K9Science.info is the website for the Sparks Conference. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Hold on me, baby, like a dog with a bone. The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options, to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. 
This is Julie Forbes. I'm excited to tell you about Farm Dog Naturals, a company that handcrafts herbal remedies for the all-natural dog. Quality and integrity are must-haves for anything that I recommend. Certified eco-friendly and cruelty-free, their products address issues like stress and anxiety, itching, hot spots, crusty noses, as well as pet urine, stains, and odor. Farm Dog Naturals is guaranteed, and I'm so happy with the results I'm seeing. Shipping is available worldwide from their website, farmdognaturals.com, or you can ask for them at a retailer near you. Again, that's farmdognaturals.com. Conversation you won't find on the rest of the dial. Alternative Talk 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. All right, welcome back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes and um, back talking with Patricia McConnell, who is an ethologist, uh, expert in animal behavior and has written many books on uh, dog training and behavior and is one of the featured speakers at this year's Sparks Conference, Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. Website is caninescience.info. You can find out how to attend live June 20th through the 22nd in Newport, Rhode Island, or via wherever you are um, online. So getting right back into our conversation about dominance, and um, you had said on break that you wanted to get into, and I do too, um, where what, what role or not does dominance play in dog training? I would argue none. I would argue virtually none for a variety of reasons. One, I don't really want to think about trying to raise my tail base. <laughs> we, can't, we can't do, we can't communicate with dogs the way we would like to sometimes. Um, so, so that's number one, you know, and I think a lot of what people think of as, quote, being dominant is just completely confusing to dogs because it has nothing to do with the way they sort of work out their yeah social hierarchy between the two of the other thing, just very quickly, I just should say parenthetically, I think dogs vary tremendously in how relevant it is to them. Yes. I think, don't you think? Absolutely. Some dogs couldn't care less. It's like, whatever, take Mm -hmm. the bone. I don't care. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it also varies about, I don't like that bone, but I want to do this, you know, a lot. So it's highly variable. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's something well understood in field ethology as well as even being territorial is actually highly variable depending on the resource. So, so that said, I think it has, has no relevance in dog training. The third reason I think it has no relevance is that it's, it's the, I, the best way to get a dog to do what we want, first of all, is, is to teach it that it's fun to do it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what we should be focusing on. That's most effective it doesn't get all about do it because, you know, dominance one is not about control. It has nothing to do with control. Um, and we're just mudding the waters, you know? It's really, if you want your dog to come when called, first of all, it has nothing to do with dominance or social order. Two, um, the best way to do it without question, and we know this from decades and decades and decades of research, is to use positive reinforcement and to teach a dog that it's really fun to come when you call. Um, can you stop every dog from chasing a deer if it's 50 yards in front of you? No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no. You know, you know, there are breed issues, there are individual issues, there are when you got your dog issues, you know, for example, did you get it as a puppy? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's so, it's just so fun and so wonderful to discover this whole new world of, putting yourself in your dog's place and imagining, well, what does she want right now? What does he want right now? What can I do um, to, to help him do what I want and reinforce him for it in a way that he'll do it again? And, and how do I start in a situation in which she is able to do what I ask? I think that's one of the biggest pitfalls, don't you think, Julie, is that people ask dogs to come when called or sit and stay when they haven't had the experience and the training to be that good at something that hard at that level of distraction, mm-hmm. 
You know, it's like expecting a five-year-old kid to play Beethoven's, I don't know, fifth right. um, to 4,000 people when they're, you know, they've just sort of learned to play, you know, <laughs> some silent night on the piano right. with their fingers or right. something. You know, so so it's just sad to me that so many people are still being sold a bill of goods that dogs... Um, should do what you want them to do because they respect you. And then usually the ways to get them to do that is using force, which is a way to lose respect. Yeah. (laughs) So then, I totally agree with you, I think, and the place to start, and I say this to people all the time, the best way to get a dog to do something for you is for them to want to do it in the first place. Perfect. So to you know, create the, the experience so that the dog is like, you know, awesome. I had a um, woman tell me once she had a 10 month old Husky. So talk about coming when called female. (laughs) And she said, we, uh, we cannot get her to come to us no matter what. She will not come to us no matter what. We have to say beef jerky. Every time we say beef jerky, she comes no matter what. (laughs) I said, well, what does she think of when you say beef jerky? (laughs) Beef jerky. She's like, sign me up. I'll come every time. (laughs) Just say beef jerky. Yeah. But sometimes sometimes the dogs won't choose, you know, as much as you do that. And this is, I think it's so important because there's not one answer to to this question. As you could do everything right from puppyhood and have a dog that isn't easy. And, you know, has an agenda of their own. Yes. And yes. and you do thousands of repetitions with the highest value reward that you can think of. And you build up distraction in the way that's appropriate and all that stuff. And then you still have, whether it be because of a drive or just a choice, that they just don't do it. And then it's a question of, well, what do we do next? And I think that's where, because the fear is that the conversation then is going to be about being you know, uh, mean, mean, bad, ugly. Mm-hmm. And and that's not the case either. And, and, you know, boundaries are important and follow through is important. And a lot of times you can just establish that by just ending up getting it. But, um, you know, and you talked about boundaries um, and, and one of your books, um, you talked about, you know, being teaching, like having this conversation, like you can love your dog without spoiling your dog. Mm-hmm. And you can also establish yourself as a leader and and not be forceful. Um, so what is then? OK, so have we covered everything you wanted to say as far as dominance and its role? You say dominance has no role in in dog training. And I kind of want to say also like, well, you know, kind of living. There's a difference between dog training and also just living with a dog. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, there is. There's actually. I'm glad you mentioned that word leader because that word too has become extremely controversial. Yeah, a lot of people don't like it. Um, I've, I've, I use it less and less just because so many people respond negatively to it. But it's really all about how you perceive it. You know, um, you know. Another way to 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 use that term is a teacher. You know, I I do think dogs. And especially a certain type of personality, they really need to feel like they're not sort of lost in a sea mm-hmm. where they have no idea where every choice they make they have no guidance on. I really strongly believe that there are some dogs that need help. They need guidance. You know, they need teachers. They need mentors. They need us to help them sort through the world. Yeah. And so that's what I mean by leader. And I know some people, they don't like that word because they think of it again as they think of like, you know, dominance, the alpha, and roll your dog over. I don't mean it that way. I mean it in the sense of being there as a teacher or a guide for your dog. Because I think, you know, some dogs don't need that. But I guess this brings up one of the points I think is so important that you indirectly alluded to, which is that every dog is different. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just because you have a golden retriever doesn't mean it's going to love all your visitors. And just because you have a border collie, doesn't mean it's brilliant or easy to train, actually. Some of them are harder to train than a lot of dogs. Um, so, so I think one of the things that's really important is to think of dogs as individuals. I mean, I have 
three dogs right now, two Border Collies and a Cavalier, I would never take the Cavalier <laughs> off-leash to a big open woods area and just let her go. Yeah. And I would never do that. Once she was in a puppy mill for seven years, mm. I didn't get her show until she was seven and a half. Wow. Two, she's a Cavalier Spaniel. Yeah. Um, and she, I mean, I say come, you know, at home, and she'll often just sort of whip around and run at me like, you know, a dog from a movie. <laughs> but I have to give her much higher reinforcement yeah. ratio than I do the Border Collies. Anyway, so so I think, you know, say you have a dog who you've done, quote, done everything. You've worked with the best trainers in the world. You've used every reinforcement. You've gone step by step. And you have a dog who you just can't trust in a certain context outside off-leash. You know what? That's okay. Then you have a dog you just can't trust. Right. And you need to manage it. And I think that's yeah. one of the biggest differences between professional trainers and the general dog-loving public is that the trainers accept that a lot of having a happy dog is mm-hmm. management. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with putting your crazy, exuberant, six-month-old dog in a back room mm-hmm. with a chew toy when you open the door, you know, mm-hmm. to visitors until you get that turned around. Yeah. Or, yeah, there's nothing wrong mm-hmm. with management. We manage our kids all the time. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. We help them stay out of trouble. There's nothing wrong with that. I think it's a great point, and I'm really glad that you said this because a lot of times I have to tell people that's not your dog. You know, they see the lab who sits out in the front lawn and would just never leave for anything, no matter what walks by, right. and they're not, <laughs> right. and they want that dog. And I'm, and it's like you're not. This is not that dog, and never will be ever. And they, they have a pointer, right? <laughs> And I think it's important to have a reasonable and appropriate expectation for the you know every dog as an individual, just just for them to be the best version of themselves that they can be. Oh, I think that's so true. And and you know, adding on to that, I think so many people feel guilty. Yeah. Because their dog isn't that fancy, stereotypical, lassy, rin tin tin dog. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is, there are very few of those. Very yeah. few of those. Um, and almost none of them, because there's always something. You know, Lassie probably peed in the kitchen and we didn't know it because June cleaned it up. That's right. right? <laughs> they edited that part out. <laughs> they edited it out. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, that is, that is funny. Um, well, so let's, okay. So we're going to run out of words that we can say in the industry. If we're starting to, you know, everyone kind of has a flare up around all these different words and they just, the the list keeps getting bigger and bigger. (laughs) Oh, don't say that word. Um, I think one of the words that came to me when you were talking about leadership and what dogs need is is structure, you know, just kind of a sense that there's some guidance so that they feel more secure in the world. And, and I, some dogs need that more than others for sure. And that, and that being a powerful presence and, and strong presence to your dog does not mean that you are dominant, you know, pinning them down kind of thing. That has nothing to do with one versus the other, but really giving them that structure and having them feel like, okay, this person has got it under, has, you know, got things under control or this person is the one who's going to, you know, deal with this if I'm uncomfortable with it and they're giving me a positive direction so that I know what I'm supposed to do with myself. Right. I think so often dogs look to us to protect them, to give them guidance about what to do. Um, And um, I think that's really important. You know, there's a lot of really good research in psychology that, that says that animals of many, many different species are happier the more they can make predictions, the more they can yeah. have expectations. Um, and, you know, and we're the same way. I mean, when you have no idea what's going to happen to you, yeah. it's exhausting, right? It's scary and it's exhausting. You know, the unknown, we talk about the unknown being really scary. It's anxiety, dogs, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And dogs live in a constant state of unknown anyway because they're living with aliens right. <laughs> who don't speak their language. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the more dogs can sort of predict how their behavior is going to, the, the effect of their own behavior, um, 
the more subtle they can be, the less anxious they can be. And so I think it's really important for us to provide, to, to sort of help dogs know. And here, here's, here's just a quick, really simple example. One of the things I learned to do years ago when wiping dogs' paws, because I live in the country, I live in Wisconsin, mud season goes on for months and months and mm-hmm. months. So a lot of dogs, a lot of muddy paws, right? Mm-hmm. So at the door, you have to pick up a paw and wipe it from mud, and there are four of them. You have a lot of dogs that can sort of add up. What I learned was was if if before I pick up a dog's paw, I give them a cue that I'm about to do that. I'm not, it's not a trained cue. I'm not saying pick your paw up. I just say ready, yeah, and that means I'm going to pick your paw up. Mm-hmm. And what happens is they start picking their paw up anyway. I'm not trying to train them. I'm just telling them. I'm not just going to jerk your body around just because I can, you know. I'm not going to do that. And, again, that's not something a dominant individual would do either, by right. the way. Right. <laughs> it's just a rude individual would do. Yeah. So, you know, so I just say, ready. And now Willie, who growled at me when he was an adolescent, yeah. when I picked up one of his paws, um, he, he picks up three out of his four. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and, again, I wasn't training him. I was just trying to give him an ability to predict what was going to happen to him. So he wasn't sort of always living in this world of, I don't know what's about to happen to me. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that's so um, such a factor in this is you are who you are, and you have, you know, decades of experience working with dogs, and you're so in tuned, and everything about you, they they know that, you know, the dogs know when we are tuned into them and when we understand them and move mm-hmm. ourselves and generate ourselves in a way that's intentional. And that's one of the hardest things to teach your average person, which kind of brings us to our next conversation, which is really about understanding dogs' visual cues, which is part of yeah. your talk at Sparks. But, right, you know, it's right. really getting people not only understanding you know, understanding dogs' language better and getting people better educated about that and a better understanding about that, and then also a, a higher awareness of how we're being and what we're communicating to the dogs and how that's landing with the dog and putting those two things together. Because the dogs, I mean, as you've seen, probably, you know, over and over and over and over and over again, you've got somebody's dog who acts a certain way with that person, and then you take the dog, and the dog is, like, different. Right. And you haven't right. even done anything. Right. <laughs> I mean, you have, but you haven't, obviously. And, it, uh-huh. you know, those are the dogs that make us look good. But it's like, you know, yeah, they're just them. responding to right. <laughs> right. that different presence. And that's so hard to teach. Um, yeah. yeah. So we're going to take um, a, a break and then we'll come back and get into that part of the conversation. We're talking with Patricia McConnell, who is one of the speakers at this year's Sparks Conference Newport, Rhode Island, June 20th through the 22nd. Go to caninescience.info and find out how you can be a part of it. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Eric, people ask me to help them with all sorts of doggy challenges. I can only imagine. Oh yeah, dogs jumping on guests, new puppy questions, behavioral challenges like fear and aggression, even dog food sensitivities, you name it, and I've probably worked with it. But can you help people even if they don't live in Seattle? Absolutely. I've had great success with phone consultations and have even Skyped with people and their dogs from all over the country. Every dog should be approached as a unique individual. I've talked about this over and over again on the show. That's one of the parts of working with dog training and behavior that I love the most. Every client is different. If you're listening and you need help with your dog, just get in touch. I'd love to get you pointed in the right direction and answer all of your questions. Email me host at dogradioshow.com. That's me, Julie Forbes, host at dogradioshow.com. I look forward to connecting. Wait, dogs can use Skype? We're really living in the future. (laughs) This is Martha Norwalk. Every Sunday morning, beginning at 9 a.m., thanks in part to the Ananda Institute of Living Yoga, we cover the world of animals. This week, July 31st, it's an encore presentation. Join me and my guest, Janice, president of New Pro Supplements, to find out why these products have been so popular for so many years. 
All of my animals are crazy about Nupro. All of my five cats now refuse to eat without their Nupro nuggets. Find out why. Martha Norwalk's Animal World, Sunday morning, 9 a.m. to noon, right here on Alternative Talk, a.m. 1150. The Natural Pet Pantry is Seattle's original source for wholesome dog and cat meals, offering eight different protein options to accommodate your pet's dietary needs. Made locally using all U.S. sourced ingredients, their freshly ground stews, raw or cooked, can be purchased from their two stores in Burien and Kirkland, most independent pet supply stores, or delivered right to your door. Go to naturalpetpantry.com for more information. I'm Julie Forbes, and my first choice for my pet's food is the Natural Pet Pantry. It's the educated choice. Broaden your horizons. You'll be amazed at all the topics we cover on Alternative Talk 1150. And now, back to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Little golden retriever rock there, courtesy of our program director, Eric Ryder. Thanks, Eric. (laughs) I'm amazed at how many legitimate songs there are out there that are dog related i almost played the lassie theme but then i listened to it and i said nah <laughs> besides i would just encourage lassie to pee on the floor that's in the kitchen, right so. that's right that's right <laughs> all right well, we're back talking with patricia mcconnell who um is uh i don't it's hard to interest kind of feels like needs no introduction at least in this conversation but author of um, many books, uh, one, The Other End of the Leash, um, and more to come, I hope, and also one of the speakers of um, at this year's Sparks Conference, Society for the Promotion of Applied Research in Canine Science. The website is caninescience.info, so find out how you can get, um, how you can participate in that, either in person or from a distance. So we've had a really great conversation, and I wish we had more, many more hours to talk. Um, about if you're just tuning in about dominance and what we've called the D word and um, other words and really clarifying what it means, first of all, what is the correct uh, definition and application of it and talking about that it really does not have anything to do with dog training. Um, And we gave some examples there. And so I wanted to talk about your, um, oh, so if you've missed any part of this episode, you can find them all archived on our website, which is dogradioshow.com. They are a free download on iTunes as an audio podcast. I'll also also post this interview on our Facebook fan page. So if you're not a fan of us on Facebook, be sure to check us out, The Dog Show with Julie Forbes on Facebook too, and be a part of the conversation in between our live shows every Wednesday at 2. So, Patricia, you are talking about uh, visual cues in, specifically in conflict. Is that right In at the Sparks Conference? Right, right. That's going to be really fun one. Now, this is a, brings up a whole, you know, another, which we'll be mindful of time since we only have about 10 minutes, but body language and the fact that dogs are not verbal. I mean, we're here talking. I, I don't, you're in Wisconsin. Right. And we're here and we're talking and blah, 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 blah. And it's been wonderful. But dogs don't do this and never will. And I don't imagine. And, um, you know, they're nonverbal communicators. And this is an art. The subtlety of nonverbal communication and is something that's been so lost in us, especially with how fast everything is now and how in our heads we are. And we also are nonverbal communicators and read a lot of those things very easily. And that's one of the reasons why we can, when we are good at it, communicate very naturally with dogs. Um, But so you're speaking about, um, you know, a, a sort of specific context. And so tell us a little bit more about what you're going to be talking about in the visual cues with dogs. Sure. Sure. You know, um, by way of preface, I just I find it an interesting irony, I guess, that on the one hand, I think part of, as you said, our relationship with dogs is so strong because we share so much in terms of visual communication. Mm-hmm. So if you look at their their faces are extremely expressive, and that's not true of most mammals. Mm-hmm. Look at a horse, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I love horses. I spend a lot of time with them. And yes, you can read changes in expression on a horse's face, but oh, you can't a dog, right? Mm-hmm. Their faces are really plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
on the one hand, I think we share this. I think it's part of why we love them so much. They have a happy face. It reminds us of a smiley face. We're right. like hardwired to be happy mm. about. Yeah. But at the same time, Julie, we're not that good yeah. at, at observing our dogs. And I guess it's because we just have, we're multitasking and multitracking in our brains so often. Mm-hmm. But so many times, you, I know you run into this. Every trainer runs into this. You're working with somebody. They love their dog so much. Their dog loves them. But but they'll do something like pat the dog on the head in a way dogs never like, like pat, 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 right. on, top of, on top of their... And the dog turns his head away and, like, walks away. And the person doesn't notice that rather than reinforcing the dog, yeah. they were actually punishing the dog. Right. <laughs> or they'll say, no, 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 he's fine. He's fine. You can pet him. And I look at this dog who is standing <laughs> absolutely statue-like still with a closed mouth, a completely stiff body, a tail up, hackles up, mouth tight as a drum, eyes like pancakes. And it's like, no, I'm all I, don't set. Think, <laughs> I don't think he wants me to bet him. Yeah. <laughs> so one of the best things I think people can do, anybody who loves a dog, um, is to learn to be a better observer. Is, is to pr- and you can practice it. It's just training. You just need to practice and train your eye and your brain to, to look for particular expressions and postures. Um, and once you see it, you can't stop seeing it. It's everywhere. Once you know to look for a tongue flick, yeah. you can't miss them. You see them yeah. everywhere. It's often a sign of a dog who's somewhat a little anxious, a little uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, sometimes perhaps it's an appeasement um, uh, behavior. But, but So once you see it, it's like, oh... This happens everywhere. Yeah. And I think one of the challenges is that people in general have a really hard time being present to anything. One thing at a time. So, I mean, anything in their life. And I'm I'm not exempt. I mean, I'm mindful and aware and, you know, fortunately work with dogs for a living. So I'm required to be present when I'm working. But in my life, I am vulnerable to all of the, you know, going too fast and all, you know, all of those things that everyone else is. Um, But that's something that's just like I tell people oftentimes right off the bat, slow down, slow down. You know, you said observe, be a better observer. And you could also say, you know, how, how good are humans in general at really listening to each other? wonderful advice. It's so true. And you're absolutely right that none of us um, are as good observers as we would probably like to be or want to be or maybe even think of ourselves as. Um, You know, I came in on Monday to my office and and I said to my office manager, I said, oh, you got your hair cut. She said, like, yeah, I did last week, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And then someone else said, oh, I didn't notice it either. (laughs) So, yeah. and, And so you're absolutely right. Take a breath slow down and just pay attention because our dogs are talking to us all the time. You know, they really, really are. And so much of their behavior, some of it is easily learned. You know, a tongue flick, for example, or a a change from an open mouth to a closed mouth or a change in um, a tail set from up to down or down to up. But some of it also is just paying attention to their responses. You know, oh, when... Here's another example. It's really common when a dog is, I can't say I know what they're feeling, but basically uncomfortable with something. You ask them to do something and they're uncomfortable or they're overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. They'll just start sniffing the ground. Mm-hmm. And and people's like, oh, he's paying no attention to me. Actually, he's paying a tremendous mm-hmm. amount of attention to you. And he's he, he's very specifically not focusing on you for a reason. Right. So, yeah, I think, you know, and the other um, context in which this is so important is parents. Um, You know, Robin Bennett and others have done some great work on helping helping, um, parents smooth smooth out relationships between young children and dogs. And I think that's a um, field that we need lots more work on. Um, but one of the things that she and her colleagues, um, Colleen um, Pilar, have found is that what's happening very often is that we're often focused on teaching children how they should behave around dogs. That's fine, but we need to be teaching parents as just as often mm-hmm. 
to pay attention to their dog's behaviors. So uh, behaviors like me, progressive trainers, we constantly see video after video after video of of parents laughing and encouraging their child to do something that a dog is screaming in nonverbal mm-hmm. dog language. Mm-hmm. I am so uncomfortable. I am trying to get out of this. I am trying to honor. I am trying to be a good dog. I just want to leave. Please let me out of the corner. Tongue flick, head turn, you know, get right. me out of here. And the parent is like, this is so funny. Look at my little kid ride the dog. And mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we're beating our head against the wall and we're and, and scared stiff that the kid's going to get know. bitten. I know. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I say, that, I say that sometimes I'll comment on something and be like, I feel like banging my head against the wall when I <laughs> see that or hear that or whatever. It's like, oh. I suspect that my IT, all my IT people <laughs> feel that way with me when they're working with me and my computer. So yeah. <laughs> I do sympathize. Yeah. Well, um, I think we can generally have, um, I mean, our sensitivity, we are so, se- humans are so sensitive so are dogs, you know, technically, I mean, just so, so sensitive to the environment, to the, the level of energy, to interaction. And humans, I mean, gosh, we are sensitive in ways that are, I mean, you could bring in psychology and all of our past and how complicated we can be an ego. And I mean, my gosh, it's just, it's incredible. It must be something to be a dog and live with us and just have them, they're watching us just kind of freaking out all over the place. But you know, for us to really slow one, slow down and get present, something that we're not good at doing with right. anything, including ourselves, and right. for a lot of reasons. Um, so that's not no easy thing to just say, hey, you know, get present in your body. Well, pff, that's a whole, you know, big can of worms. Um, right. Huge right. topic. Um, and then to just really get better in learning through talks like yours books like yours and others who who are, um, you know, experts in dogs and how they communicate and reading those visual cues and, and giving people the information that they need and then also just people having the awareness in the first place to yeah. observe, listen, be sensitive, take into consideration the dog's experience and not take things for granted in the way that we do, like with the example with the kids, you know, climbing right. all over the dog. right. And, it, you know, it's not rocket science. It's so doable. You yeah. know, I've got my my other Palantine book was For the Love of a Dog, and it's about emotions in people and mm-hmm. dogs, sort of what's the same, what's different. And, and it has a whole section of photographs of expressions of dogs um, that express yeah. um, the primitive, primal emotions like fear, um, uh, joy, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and by the way, speaking of that, Michelle Wan, Dr. Michelle Wan. And about 30 seconds, just so you know, until I have oh, to thanks. close anyway, up. Yeah. Fascinating study that found that the less experienced people have with dogs, the less able they are to sense discomfort or fear on the dog. Mm-hmm. The more experienced, the better. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And we could talk. Yeah. Okay. So, um, Patricia McConnell, thank you so much for your time today. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and we'll spread it around the world uh, within the next day or so. And very much looking forward to hearing you speak at Sparks Conference. I I won't be there in person, but I'll be there. I'll be listening from Washington State. Um, She's one of the speakers at this year's Sparks Conference, which is June 20th to the 22nd in Newport, Rhode Island. Go to caninescience.info. And if you'd like to learn more about Patricia McConnell, you can go to her website, patriciamcconnell.com. And I'll post all these links on our homepage, dogradioshow.com, where this uh, interview will be archived. It's, I think, number 276 now. So there's plenty of listening for you there. And uh, thanks again so much for your time and have a great time at Sparks. All right. Thanks for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. We'll be back next Wednesday, live at 2. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.